Well, good morning, Church on the Way. I'm so glad to be here this morning sharing a Sunday with you. My name is Jonathan Wright. If any of y'all don't know me, I'm a friend of Dale and Jamie's, although I'm not sure if they would say that about me. No, I'm just kidding. No. We are, we're friends. We've gotten to know each other over the months that I have been here in northern Florida. I've been a pastor at First Baptist Church Lake Butler for about four years now and just love it. I'm one of three pastors there and just love getting to see how the Bible and what Jesus has done impacts all of life. That's my passion, and I'm so excited to get to be doing that. It's really a joy and privilege. And I hope this morning is a reflection of that, that God's Word is so valuable, it's so important, it's what we want to model our lives around. And so this morning, I want us to be looking at John chapter 17. Before we begin, though... I want to talk to you about the subject of joy. Joy. Joy is one of those things that I think it's kind of a Christian word that we tend to use a lot that that those who don't follow Jesus might not use as much. But joy, true Christian joy, as it's found in Scripture, say in like a book like Philippians. It's talked about a lot there. Christian joy, I think, this is what John Piper says, Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. So Christian joy is different than just happiness. It's kind of underneath the surface. It's always there. It's rooted in something much bigger than just our circumstances. You know, if we've had a good payday or we've gotten into the school we want to. Christian joy, that sense of peace, that it will all be okay because Jesus is king, is how we should live. That's hard to come by. It's pretty unique to find somebody who really lives by joy. We, we know some people who are like that. The ones who do have this type of joy, we tend to enjoy and hang out with and like, and appreciate, but those without joy, we tend to avoid, kind of constantly complaining. They don't really have much to be thankful for. They don't really have much of a hope for the future. Well, I want to tell you about my grandmother, Mary Wood. She had multiple sclerosis, a disease in which the immune system, it eats away at the protective covering of nerves, so that the resulting nerve damage disrupts communication between the brain and the body. Friends, it's a nasty disease, and it paralyzes you. For all my life, I knew my grandmother as one who could only move her neck and above. She was reclined in a wheelchair, and that was her life. That's how I knew her. And it wasn't until she went to be with the Lord in 2019 When I was talking to one of her daughters at her funeral, which I had the privilege to officiate, I found out that she had considered ending her life when this diagnosis came. And then I learned that in that season of contemplating, like she knew that it was only going to get worse. She knew that her situation was so tough that her body was shutting down, yet she found joy. What she ended up doing was recommitting herself to her church, 
She continued to deepen her relationship with Jesus and the people around her. And as a result, my my only memories of my grandmother is of, of a person of joy and of peace and one who understood that life is precious and valuable. She even had a selfless interest in other people. Imagine that. You're, you're in a wheelchair. You can't do much, and yet she cared about those around us. Friends, to the watching world, that doesn't make sense. I mean, how easy would it be to let bitterness take over? God's not after my good. God doesn't care about me. Those types of thoughts. And yet she committed herself to a joy that is found in Christ alone. And that's why it's unique. That's why it's hard to come by. It's a work that God does by his spirit. And if I'm honest, I want that kind of joy. I want that type of peace in the midst of pain and uncertainty. I want to trust in the God of scripture that no matter what happens, enough about me is secure to keep my feet going one foot in front of the other towards Jesus and with Jesus. So, how do we get that kind of joy? How could our lives look more like that? And I want to take that question to John chapter 17. I want to bring this question to Jesus. If you're here and you don't follow Jesus, that might seem a little bit weird. We're talking about a guy who historically lived in the world about 2,000 years ago. But the reason why we do this is because we believe all of Scripture is God speaking to us. It's perfect. It's exactly what he wants us to know. Every book within the 66 books that we have in the Bible is God telling us his plan for the world, why he's in charge, who Jesus is, and why all of the world should follow him as king. So that's why we're bringing this question to Jesus. We want to hear from him so that we can have real, true, functional, rock-solid, anchored, unchanging joy. So to do that, we're going to look at this prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17. This is the longest recorded prayer that Jesus prays in Scripture. And this is a section in which, in the Gospel of John, Jesus is preparing his followers for the cross, for his departure, that he is not going to be physically present with them for much longer. And this chapter, although it's 20-something verses is just such a great, complete unit of text that I couldn't find a good way to divide it for you guys. So I'm going to read the entire chapter, and I can promise you this. Just please pay attention. Go along with me. This will be the most important thing that comes from my mouth today. John chapter 17. Let's look at this chapter together. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me, In your own presence, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. 
For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know the truth, in truth, that I came to you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for those, for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may be all one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these that you have sent me, I made known to them your name, and I continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is God's word. Let me pray. Father, we need your help. We want to understand your word. We come to you. God, give us humility to mold and bend our lives around your truth. God, it's so easy. This has been a busy week. We come from lots of different situations and circumstances. May you just calm our minds and give us, Lord, a refreshing taste of what you want us to do, who you want us to be, what you want us to worship. I pray that all these things would would glorify your Son, that we would truly live and be your people here to the watching world. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this text, in John 17, although it's a longer portion of scripture, you probably notice quite a few things are repeated here in this text. But I really think that the thrust of John 17 is getting at our joy. How can we have joy like Jesus? That's why I'm entitling this message, Jesus' Joy Shared with Us. So what I think is, in this text, we will see that Jesus shares his joy with us 
which grows through living for God's glory, living out his love, and living in unity with believers. That's kind of my main point this morning. If, if I were to kind of give you one thing to take away, it's that Jesus shares his joy with us, which grows through, through living for God's glory, living out his love, and living in unity with believers. So there are three things I just want to pull out of this text. I'm not going to say everything we could say about John 17. We're just going to draw out three truths from this text that I want you and all of us to understand and glory in. And that first one is that God is about God. God is about God. Here in this text, we, we read a lot about God's glory. You might think, okay, that's, that's a cool word. We use that a lot here at church. We want to live for God's glory. We want God's glory to spread. What is God's glory? Is it kind of just like a cloud? Is it just like a feeling? God's glory is when his character goes public, when his, his attributes and what he has done is made known and cherished and enjoyed by his people. That's what it means when his people respond in knowing and treasuring God. That is what glory is. And as you've probably noticed throughout this text, Jesus is praying to the Father. And, you know, as historic Christian belief and doctrine from the Bible, we read that God is one being. This is the understanding of the Trinity, of who our God is. He is one being, but in three persons that have eternally existed as one the Bible teaches that the Father is God, that the Son is God, and that the Holy Spirit is God. And here we get a, a deep glimpse into the Trinity. Jesus is, in a sense, speaking to himself, but in another sense is speaking to the Father. And this is also by, I think, implication by the Holy Spirit, who's talked a lot about in the previous chapters. But we may ask the question, how is Jesus glorifying the Father? How did he show the Father's glory? Well, in verse 4, we, we get that answer. I glorified you on earth, Jesus says, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So Jesus, throughout his life, made God's character known by living in such a way that people who saw him and who knew him would see and understand the Father. This happened as Jesus preached the good news about the kingdom, as Jesus trained his disciples, showing them what it meant to live out these things, and also as he performed miracles, which proclaimed the power of new creation, showing that Jesus truly is God's son. Jesus is the one, friends, who perfectly reveals God, who perfectly showed God's glory. Turn with me over to John chapter 1. I just love this statement about how Jesus reveals the Father. This is John chapter 1 and verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For him, for from him his fullness, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, 
who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So until Jesus, people never fully saw the true character of God. Jesus' work showed the Father. He manifested God's name, his reputation. And friends, this is even more surprising when we know our Old Testaments. We know in places like Isaiah 42 verse 8 where God says, I am Yahweh, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Yahweh didn't just hand out his glory. If Jesus truly was the Son of God, and he is, he was perfectly taking on the glory and and proclaiming who God is everywhere he went. And this glory goes back and forth. As Jesus makes much of the Father, the Father makes much of the Son. And this glory if you notice, is then passed on to us, his people. In verse 22, the glory that you have given me, Jesus says, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. Friends, this is the privilege of our lives. This is truly what separates you from everyone else, that you understand and know why you're made why God has placed you here on the earth. We know what we are designed for, to image and represent God, to live life his way, which is what spreads his glory. As we live out our lives, not perfectly, but in repentance, following his word, we are spreading his glory. This is what the great theologian J.I. Packer meant when he began chapter three of his book, Knowing God. He said, What were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. What is the best thing in life, bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? Knowledge of God. What of all the states God ever sees man in gives him most pleasure? Knowledge of himself. So friends, as you spread God's glory, when you're in situations in your lives, this could look in many different ways, like living like God at work when others around you are unethical, or living like God at home when your children annoy you from their foolish behavior, or living like him at school when your classmates use others for their own advantage and only see their success as the most important thing, our lives are full of opportunities to live for God's glory. So friends, we must see God's instruction here and wisdom here as sweeter than honey because this is where life is cultivated. This is where we get joy. This is where we get peace. Don't you want that? I just say as a quick aside, if you're here, you don't follow Jesus, I'm so glad you're here. But if you want to know more about what Jesus is doing, I would just say with Jesus in John 1.39, come and see. Be around the church. Hang out with Christians. Come be a part of this community and see not our perfect lives, but our perfect Savior who has changed our lives and given us everlasting life as a gift that we then get to live out in enjoyment. Follow Jesus today. 
So the first thing to see here is that God is about God, and that's the privilege that we get to follow in. The second thing I want you to see is Jesus' care for his sons and daughters. Jesus' care, our Savior, the way that he just puts others first. This is amazing. By verse 2, he's already praying for other people. I don't know about you, but it's a lot easier, I think, to pray for yourself, to think of the things that are wrong with your life, the things that you would like God to fix in your relationships and in the way you react to things. But Jesus, the true Son of God, begins his prayer in one verse and then starts talking about others. I mean, that is truly amazing. He prays, you know, especially for his disciples in the first few verses. And then, of course, to expands to those who follow the apostles' message. And I think all of these things can be taken together to see how Jesus shares what he has. The Father gives it to him, and then he pours it out to those around him. That's simply amazing. Everything begins with Jesus. That relationship between the Father and the Son is one of eternal love. This is like in verse 24, where he prays that those will see his glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And that love is then shown in the way Jesus cares for his people. That type of love, that that type of other's focus is given to us. But Jesus also shares other things with us. What does this text show us that we have? What exactly does Jesus give us? First, Jesus gives us eternal life. He says, since you have given them authority, in verse 2, over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So, and I love in Scripture when we get things like this, we get a nice definition of what eternal life is in the next verse. This is eternal life that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus doesn't mean they know about God. This is a knowledge of experience, that I am in a deep relationship with the true God. If you really know King Jesus, you submit to him. And that's what Jesus means here. So we get eternal life, but also Jesus gives us truth. This is like in verse 8. Look there, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, have come to know in truth that I came from you, that they have believed that you sent me. Isn't that amazing? I mean, when you meet everyone in your life that you know, we all are are beings, are humans who want to understand what is right and true. We even hear phrases like, live your truth, which I don't quite agree with. But in our pursuit of what is real, Jesus just gives it to us. We don't have to search for it. We don't have to wonder, is this what really corresponds to reality? No, we get it as a gift. It comes from Jesus in his word. The search for truth is over. I love that. And the enjoyment of what the truth is now begins. So Jesus gives us truth. But then the third thing he gives us, as we've seen, is his glory. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Look at how selfless Jesus is. He is giving us all that we need 
He is prepping his disciples for his departure, as we see in verse 11. But he is giving us, all of believers, amazing gifts for us to know him and follow him and have a life submitted to him. And all of this is by his spirit. As he shows us, if you look at the page just previously in John 17, we are told that Jesus says in verse 12 of chapter 16, I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me and he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. See Jesus' care for his sons and daughters. He wants us to have joy, verse 13. He wants us to be sanctified and consecrated, verse 17. And here, I mean, Jesus asks for quite a lot. It's not a bad thing, friends, to to heap lofty prayers to God. He asks for the Father to glorify the Son, to keep or protect his disciples. He prays for the oneness of disciples and believers. He prays for their joy. He prays for their sanctification. He prays for belief from the world. He prays that believers would be with him, and he prays that love would be among them. And isn't that amazing? Just a few verses before Judas' betrayal. He's he's talking about his disciples who are right there. And friends, when we read scripture, we see his disciples were not the perfect followers. Over and over again, they didn't understand him. They misrepresented him. They outright doubted him at times, and they failed to grasp his true identity over and over again. And yet, consider here how loving Jesus is. His care for his sons and daughters who have no right to be with him. They didn't do anything. They didn't come from great schools or great families. Yet Jesus set his love on them. He invited them into the kingdom and said, come and follow me. And here, Jesus extends mercy. His voice still rings with what we heard earlier this morning. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. That's why one theologian put it, faith is like an empty open hand stretched out towards God with nothing to offer and everything to receive. Friends, we aren't amazing. We aren't perfect. We all come from, as the Bible says, dust, and we are headed towards dust. Ecclesiastes 3. The hope of the Christian, though, the hope of the follower of Jesus is not in ourselves. It's not in if we can conjure up enough belief. It's not in if we can kind of gather enough good things to put on our righteous resume so that maybe God will appreciate us and and say, come on to our team, like it's like a dodgeball, you know, picking your team kind of moment. That's not how it goes. God did it all through his work, through his son, on the cross, on our behalf. That is the basis of our rescue Our hope is in him. That is the good news. I love how C.S. Lewis put it. He said, The Christian does not think God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. Just as the roof of a sun house does not attract the sun because it is bright, 
but becomes bright because the sun shines on it. So see here, friends, Jesus' care for us here, and it transforms us to be new people, gives us every reason to have joy. So we've seen God is about God. We've seen Jesus' care for his sons and daughters. And last, I just want us to see that our identity is in our unity. So here in this text, as Jesus is talking about his followers, that our identity as a society, as a, as a collection of those who follow Jesus is really in our unity. And there are four things I want us to see about this. The first is that unity begins with God's identity. We serve one God, as reiterated in 1 Timothy 5, 2, yet he is in three persons. There's an analogy here for us to see that even though God is diverse in a sense, he is one. Even though he is Many, in one sense, he is one unified God. That oneness defines him. We even see that back in Deuteronomy 6, in what Jews would recite every day, the Shema, where God is one. That is now mirrored in his people, and Jesus wants us to be like he is. Verse 11. So unity begins with God's identity. Second, unity comes from our spiritual union with God. Unity comes from our spiritual union with God. Did you notice these words? I mean, it's amazing. Like in verse 21, where Jesus says, Father, he says, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That's some interesting language, where we have a deep connection with the God of the universe where we can be described as being in God, in Christ. That's amazing. This is what we call the doctrine of union with Christ. And it describes our spiritual connection with God by faith, where through the Holy Spirit we share in everything Jesus offers. It's kind of my definition of union with Christ, where God is in us, And because he is in us, as Ephesians 1 says, we get to share in every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's amazing. All of that comes because we are one with him. Unity comes from our spiritual connection with God. Shailin writes in his book, The New Reformation, our union with Christ means that we have a spiritual connection with one another that transcends all natural earthly relationships Division in the church is a denial of this profound reality. Third, unity exists because the church is one. So Jesus prays here for oneness. We have to remember this is before the cross. On the cross, Jesus definitively purchased our oneness. Because we all are now unified with him and our identity comes from him, the one who died and rose again, that is what unites us. Any dividing walls which we build, like where we come from, what language we speak, how much money we have, our family heritage, what language, I mean, all these things, what what hobbies we have, they've been forever torn down. Not that these differences are erased or not important, but they're categorized as less important than our union with Christ, our identity in him. 
That is what's amazing. I've started taking up a little bit of golf, and I've realized just how everyone who plays golf tends to look kind of similar, right? There's a whole dress code to it. Of course, you have to have the shoes, otherwise they yell at you, and then you have to have the polo, and it's like tucked in. And I even, I've been wearing like longer socks, and I realized like nobody plays golf with like long socks. I don't know why. It's just the thing. It's just how it goes. But yet, when you have a passion like golf and everyone starts looking similar, you know, it starts making sense that these are friendships and communities are formed. You're all kind of trying to do something similar. That's the type of stuff that the world looks at, and they're like, yeah, I get that. But friends, the church doesn't make sense to the world. The church shouldn't make sense to the world. My family has lived in Japan for a few years at different times in our lives, and we were mostly in the city of Nagoya. And while we were there, we were a part of a church called All Nations Fellowship. And it truly, as its name talks about, was a representation of like all nations. I'm not kidding. There were like 40 nations represented on a given Sunday. And especially as Japanese people would go by, they would look in through, their, we kind of like had like a storefront church. They could kind of see through the window. You know, they would see people from South America, from Africa, people from Europe. They would then see people from like Russia and other parts of Asia. I mean, including like Korea in Japan. I don't know if you know anything about the history between Koreans and Japanese. It's not super great. And that didn't make sense to them. How could these people all be together <laughs> doing similar things, sharing a same, like the same meal, talking, enjoying each other's... Like, that doesn't make sense. That unity comes from somewhere much bigger than the stuff that humans can make up. It comes from our purchased identity on the cross. Unity exists because the church is... One. The last thing I want you to see about unity is that unity fuels evangelism. Unity fuels evangelism. Did you notice this? Even in places like verse 25, Jesus prays, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these that you have sent me. These know that you have sent me. Verse 26, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Friends, the world does not know the true God. The world needs to know. They're in desperate need of knowing the truth, of why they were created, of where true joy is found, of what's ahead of them for eternity. Our togetherness, our oneness as a church centered on the gospel is one of the most convincing things to the watching world of Jesus' real power of transformation. I really believe that. Which also means that when the church is not unified, I think the watching world, just they kind of see that and they're like, yeah, see, I don't need to be a part of that. Jesus really doesn't change them. That's where the church needs to be repentant where we need to show the world we are not perfect, but our Savior is, and what we're striving towards is unity, is the mission that Jesus has given us to make disciples of all nations. And this is what, friends, leads to joy, as in we see in verse 13. So, 
What are we sent to do? What are we commissioned to do in this evangelism? We are to exist modeling God for the world to believe. That's what Jesus tells us in verse 21, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So we've seen from John 17 that God is about God, that Jesus cares so well, so selflessly for his sons and daughters. And then third, that our identity is really in our unity. So just to wrap this up, how does this become really practical in our lives? How do we kind of take these truths and shape them into like our Monday, into our times with friends, into our time at school? How are we to live out a text like John 17? To do that, I want to offer just three questions for you to ask yourselves. Three things that I just hope that we can all ask of ourselves. I know I need to ask myself these questions too. The first question is, how can I live to make much of God? It's pretty simple. But imagine if you ask that question every day. How can I live to make much of God? Friends, it's so easy to immediately start thinking about yourself when you wake up, what you have to do. You know, even if you're a little more sanctified, my family and what things they have to, you know, have done for them. But to be thinking, how do I make much of God today? That's the question we should ask. So be different, friends, than the world and be different by being Christ-like. This is verse 14. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. We are different. We're not the same with the world. We are definitively marked by truth. And friends, we all need to be different. We're given Jesus' word. We're given his truth. Let's know it. Let's spend time understanding God's word. I'm so grateful here that you have great pastors who model this. We want to live our lives getting God's word in us deep into our bones, that this would truly shape who we are as people. But also, to, to do this, to make much of God, we need to avoid the snares of the evil one. This is in verse 15, that Jesus even prays that we would be kept from the evil one. Friends, as Paul tells us, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Yes, there are physical things we face, but we'd be much more helped to think about this life and our struggles in a spiritual sense. And to see that the evil one, the enemy, if he can't just outright tempt you, he would much rather just distract you so that you don't really spend time thinking about God. You're not asking the question, how do I make much of him? I think Satan is often very happy with our busy schedules that keep us away from the things that really lead to true discipleship, that give us time to, to spend with him that leads to enjoying who he is in prayer and in his word. I know it's tough, friends. I'm right there with you. But this is worth it. Our joy and our eternal lives are worth it. And another reason why we are to make much of God is because the world needs us. They need to see us living out the Bible. They need to see us modeling Jesus' life. 
They need to see us repenting and striving to be like him. The world around you needs you. So that first question I think we should ask is, how can I live to make much of God? Second, what would it look like to be a little more like Jesus' selflessness? You can ask it in a few different ways, but how in your life could you model Jesus' love towards the people around you? What would that look like? Maybe the person at work who isn't really liked, who is kind of annoying, maybe who's um, by himself or something. Maybe they need a conversation. Maybe it's a relationship you have where you have not done what you know Jesus has called you to do, to forgive, to move on, or to, to, to follow Jesus more closely in providing things like truth or, or, or mercy. I don't know what it is for you, but, but your life, friends, requires selflessness. Who in your life can you demonstrate that to now, now, friends, I know we're not doing this to, to get a good place with God. He's already given us everything by grace. We're not trying to earn any more of God's favor. We have all that we need. But grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. We should be putting all of our strength into living this way, to, to really taking even the simple moments of around the house, around the dinner table, as an important opportunity to model Jesus' selflessness, putting other people first. And this will be truly what models God's love. That's what love is. It's a sacrificial commitment to someone else's good. It's saying, I care about you no matter what you give back to me. That's the type of stuff we should be living out. Put yourself in other people's shoes, you know? See that we're all kind of a mess. We all have had problems this week. We all don't have it all figured out, but that's okay. We follow a perfect risen Savior. So what would it look like to be a little more like Jesus' selflessness? And last, I just want to leave you with this. I would ask yourself, do I contribute to or detract from the church's unity? I really don't think there's a middle ground. I think that we are people who are either pursuing Jesus and loving people or really going against that because we know we're battling the flesh. We are still wrestling with sin. Yes, we're forgiven, but we are still fighting. Friends, regeneration is what creates our unity and we need to pursue unity. You may ask the question, if we're already one, if this is Jesus, something that Jesus has already accomplished, why do we need to pursue unity? Well, Ephesians 4.3 calls us to be eager to maintain unity. It's much like how in Romans, 6, chapter, in Romans chapter 6, verse 8, we're told, Now if we have died with Christ, and then a few verses later it says, So you also must consider yourself dead to sin, and to live to God in Christ Jesus. <laughs> How are those two things, you know, true at the same time? The reality is, is that oneness and our unity is this reality, is this condition that changes us. So it's since we are unified in this big scale, on a huge level at the cross, we should also go after unity with those who were around 
we should also seek to live out being one here as a church. And friends, you know, it's a joy to get to preach to a church that I don't personally know you very well, so I can't tell you exactly what this looks like. I, I would know for our church at First Baptist, there are things that we do to promote unity, but I'm, I'm talking about things like following Scripture, following pastors, spending time in, you know, your small groups, following God's word, seeking to live it out, talking well of believers, being types of people who stick up for your church. Those are types of things that produce unity, that demonstrate what we are called to do in Ephesians chapter 4. I love this text where Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility, with gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Friends, that should define us. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with each other. And this is our hope, friends, that as we live this life, one day we will meet Jesus face to face, where we finally enter into the rest that he has earned for us. That just as Jesus said, I am coming to you to the Father, he tells us in Revelation, behold, I am coming soon. As surely as he left, he will return. And I'll just end with these words from Richard Baxter, a Puritan who lived in 1660. He wrote this about heaven. He said, My knowledge of that life is small. The eye of faith is dim. But it's enough that Christ knows all, and I shall be with him. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you. Thank you for who you are. I'm grateful for Christ who shares his joy with us. I pray, Lord, that in this congregation here at Church on the Way and in our congregation at First Baptist, Lord, and those who truly live for you, that we would grow through living for your glory, through living out your love for living in unity with one another. God, I'm so grateful to get to be a messenger, an ambassador for you, and I pray, God, that we truly would all take these things to heart, that your word would captivate us and cause us to treasure you more and more. I pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.